You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are taking a deep dive into the planning realm of Western Australia with the president of the Planning Institute of Australia, WA Branch. It is Amanda Shears. She's also the director of planning at the City of Stirling. Amanda, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Trent. It's great to be here. It's a really topical time, I think, to have a chat with yourself, being at the head of the planning pile in Western Australia these days, because I tell you what, planning and obviously housing supply being a derivative of that has really been at the front of the headlines in our industry for the last few months, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been ramping up every single year. If you look back at the headlines, it's becoming more and more prominent as an issue that everyone is grappling with, not just in Western Australia, but across Australia as well. It's a huge issue. When you think about the DPLH and the policies they've handed down, which obviously at a local level, you guys have to work with, plan for, obviously, mm. uh, it, it's it's been a bit of a shambles, to be frank, in the last few months. And a lot of the work that's been done at state level, and obviously stakeholders going into that regarding Aboriginal cultural heritage, POS, medium density code. I mean, there's not many organisations that could spend a lot of time and money putting projects together to then have them canned and heads not roll. I know that's a pretty big call for me to make, but surely questions are being asked at the PIA level about what is going on and what's the path forward. I think it's important to remember that when when we're drafting new planning policy or, or position statements and things like that, it takes such a long time. So at the time when the medium density codes, for example, was started to be drafted or that first thought about it came about, it was a very different climate. And well, housing supply wasn't an issue at the no, time. No. So I think it's not necessarily the case that with the launch of these new position statements or policies that come out from the state that they've missed the mark or they're, they're drastically wrong. I think at the time that that was developed and the basis for it is all fundamentally sound planning and good outcomes and everyone agrees that that's the future and that's where everyone wants to go but it's the timing I guess and the significant change to the industry that they were facing to align with those codes. Mm. For me it's also the application. I think the direction that a lot of policies take from a local and a state level are generally quite acceptable to the community. They're in the direction that most of us would expect it would go. But I think a lot of the time, especially with the last couple of state codes that have come out, it's the application, it's the detail that gets in the way. And, and yes, I think we can talk to the macro space that makes it more critical that these the application is correct. But you know, things like charging POS on infill, on apartments. Obviously, we want to make sure that there's public open space in the right areas and there's money for trees and playgrounds and things, but it flies in the face of the same state's policy of trying to incentivize infill, which across the breadth of all the rest of the policies is getting harder and harder to do in the first place. So there's real questions I think that need to be asked of the leadership at the DPLH. And I think those questions are not only just being asked by developers, but also local planners, private planners who have been gearing up for a lot of these policies like what we'll talk about today, especially the medium density code, where whether you liked it or not, you've been spending a lot of time getting ready for it, haven't you? Yeah, significant amount of time. And, you know, I know the minister's decision to pull it was hard and, and Pia certainly was disappointed about that. We felt that it was heading the right direction and it was the change that we needed to start improving design outcomes, to start improving solar access and all those basic things that we sort of sometimes take for granted in design. But, you know, we certainly understand where the minister's coming from and the conundrum, I guess, that he's been in in making that decision. 
since that decision, Pia has been having some good discussions with the minister and also along with other industry bodies. So Institute of Architects and Landscape Architects together with Property Council and UDA to really try and understand where can we have alignment and what are the options going forward. We were at a round table with the minister just last week, which was really positive in terms of, look, yep, he's made the decision and we accept that. But what can we do going forward so that good design isn't the hard option? Like from a local government point of view Mm. in assessing DAs, when we see applications that come through that have sort of a, a unique outcome or a unique design solution, they're the ones that get put through the ringer. We want to be hard. able to approve those. Yeah, but the yeah. framework's just not there. Yep. So I think we've got to flip that. We've got to make that good design an easier pathway rather than penalising that good design. So if we can do that by some sort of dual system or, or however it might work going forward, fantastic. And the minister's certainly open to that, but it is really tricky to make that work. Look, I think we'll talk more about that later in the episode, but I, I agree with you. I very much believe that the broader the church we can create right now across all design spectrums, all design outcomes to meet certain segments of the market that are demanding certain products, we should be broadening it as far as we can, as long as we meet our specific arbitrary outcomes of, you know, overshadowing certain setbacks that we agree as a society are required for safety or for parking, whatever it is. Uh, everything else should be, look, if you have a great design and you can fit families in there and they're happy, why can't we approve this? And maybe this will be a watershed moment going forward. But I'd like to quickly roll back to you for a second. You won't feel comfortable with me saying this, but personally, you are the highest performing local planning professional I've dealt with in the last 14 years, which is why you're here in the studio, which is why you're the president of PAA. You're gone red and blush in the face, but uh, <laughs> I genuinely believe this. You, you are someone I think who can and should be able to lead the way for us in the planning space in Western Australia going forward. And you've been recognized as that, but you didn't start in Western Australia, did you? No. You're a Brisbane girl. I'm an import. Mm. Look out. I wonder if there's a bit of a theme there of bringing what a lot of us would suggest is a much more progressive planning space and mindset over to Western Australia and somehow that sort of fits in. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I think, you know, the challenges that you've highlighted in terms of some local government challenges over here are similar on the East Coast. It's not, you know, we're not alone in that space. I've certainly had a a diverse career background. So I I did start out in local government originally in a subdivisions team on the city of Gold Coast. Cole Dutton was actually my boss. There you go. Cole Dutton running Stockland in Western Australia these days. Small Um, world, isn't it? That's right. Stayed there for a little while, moved around in council, got different experience and then maternity leave and and had a couple of kids and then during that time I was working in a private consultancy firm for 10 years and I think that awareness of the commercial reality and, and the other side of the table has really helped me in my career to understand both sides and planning is really all about balance and for me having that appreciation and understanding of what that balance on the other side of the table is was, has been critical. Then I did some time in state government in Queensland for another stint at Gold Coast again, which was fantastic, working on light rail and unique projects that you don't often get throughout your career. It was during the Com Games as well, so there was a Exciting lot going time. on. And, yep. you know, Gold Coast has different challenges. It has significant growth problems and it's a huge city. It's the second largest local government in Australia. Is that behind the Brisbane City Council? Yes, it is. Well, there you go, Brisbane's right. biggest. Yes. Well, look, I think we can talk about that later is the differences in the way that that's all set up. But mm. what brought you to WA? Uh, just a change. Well, I mean, the job, obviously, I applied for the job at City of Stirling and was fortunate enough to be successful. And I had had enough of 
Queensland and southeast Queensland, and it's pretty busy over there now. And they've got some significant growth challenges, and traffic challenges. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so much to explore in Western Australia, just as a destination in itself. Our husband and I are photographers, so we wanted to really explore WA as well. There's so much to see over here, and yes, it's quite vast and takes a significant amount of time to get anywhere. <laughs> pretty much no cell phone signal out yeah. 30 minutes out of Perth, but yeah, that was sort of really attracted us to settle over here in Perth for a while. So yeah, I think we it was love very it. humbling to hear that. <laughs> Obviously, having someone from the East Coast who's got a very good career, no reason to be here, to be yeah. frank, other than let's have a crack and it looks like a great place to live. And how's it been? You've obviously settled in. Yeah, great. We absolutely love it. And I think the lifestyle, you have the best of both worlds. Yes, you have the beaches and the beautiful natural landscapes over here, but the city in itself, and I know, you know, Perth gets a bit of a bad rep sometimes, but it's a fantastic city. And I think something on the Gold Coast that's missing is that you don't have that city life. It's it's quite diverse and it's a lineal city. So you don't have that concentration that you do in a CBD. Pop-up bars and cool pubs and things like that. Yeah, we've really enjoyed our time and yeah, love everything that Perth has to offer and lacks humidity which is fantastic <laughs> yeah big change obviously <laughs> let's talk about the city of sterling for mm. a second i met you when you were a manager yes and i have to say that i assume when it was a time when you started only recently the culture was very different there i'd suggest that most people would say it was one of the hardest places to get anything done the city of sterling and that would be you know three four years ago it just eroded to that culturally in the planning space and now I can say, and you have a massive part in this, I think, the culture has flipped. It's now a city, at least a planning team within the city that goes, how can we help? How can we be a part of the solution? Look, there are rules, but how can we work within the rules to be able to get your outcome? Because at the end of the day, we're all on the same team trying to achieve similar things. Now, that was not experience I had when I had been dealing with Sterling over the years before you arrived. How have you changed it? And do you think it's something that can be replicated over some other cities in Western Australia that maybe are in a tough space to work with too? I would like to say I'm solely responsible for that, but it's certainly not just me. The right leadership has certainly helped and the approach from the council there. They're very open and willing to investigate initiatives that might help our customers. And when I say customers, Developers are also customers to the city as well. And I think really instilling that in the staff in terms of everyone that comes through the door who wants to do something in the city is a customer. Whether or not we like it or whether or not we're going to support it, they're still our customer. So we still need to give them that same level of customer service we would to well, it's public someone service, else. isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And I, I don't know, personally, I sort of take the view of trying to be the opposite of what everyone thinks local government is. So we all know, I've heard the rumours some aren't rumours actually, but in terms of what a local government is and they're bureaucratic, they're slow, they're this, they're that. So if I can be the opposite of what that sort of is, then then happy days and we've got a good team. I think the key though is really that support from above. I've worked previously in organisations where you don't necessarily have that and it doesn't work. It does not work at all. And Stephen Roddick, who's well, now, the CEO, now the CEO, is a great fella. Absolutely. And he, he's obviously was the director before you. Yes. He's fantastic to work with. And, and he started that cultural shift before I arrived. It sort of came through strongly from the council itself too, going, we're getting all these complaints. This can't continue. How do we improve? Steve coming on board was part of that. Steve and I are quite similar in terms of our approach as well and how we approach things we're quite pragmatic but if it's going to be a no you'll know straight up it's a no and you and I have had some you know debates over the time as well not agreed that's that's the point is that um, developers 
uh, you know, if they're realistic about things, aren't just looking for a golden ticket. All they're looking for is clarity, honesty, efficiency, and proactivity. If you've got a good project, then you should be fairly comfortable that with the right people in both the private and public sector, this project will get done and it will be a benefit to the community. If you don't have the right project, well, it's never going to get approved, but at least let's get that on board very quickly. And if it needs to be tweaked, have the ability to ask the city, well, what will it take to get this approved? And, and it's a bit of third-party advice really that most of us would be looking for. And if you can get that effective advice from the city, then you've got a pathway forward. And I think it's just a case of having that culture, which I think really lacks in, to be frank, half the cities in the metro area in Perth, in the LGAs, of working together as a team. When a developer comes in with an idea, they've already spent a lot of time, emotion, money, they've invested in it themselves. They're excited about what they're going to achieve. It might not be perfect, but maybe we can get it there. If the local government planning team and engineers to that extent as well can come to the party and go, look, we're on the same team, let's work towards something, that would be a far more efficient city in solving what is our biggest issue right now, which is housing supply. Mm. You've very quickly risen to the top of being president of the PIAWA. How did it happen and why did you think you wanted to take a position there and what have you learned so far from that position? Well, when I moved to WA, I knew basically two people. So I, I had no network over here and I, I felt that as a professional moving into a foreign state, a different planning framework, completely different to Queensland's framework, I really wanted to build my network and understand more about the system and where it came from and, and a bit more of sort of the background. So I put myself forward to be on the divisional committee for PIA two years ago. It's a volunteer, so it's for the love, not for the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was this podcast. Yeah, that's right. I really enjoyed Enjoyed it. I never had the opportunity in previous roles to be able to do that for various reasons. So I, I also felt that I'm at a point in my career that I do want to be more involved in that more strategic thinking and, and PIA. And I know there's previously, historically, there's been some criticism over PIA and, and the direction and, and things that they undertake. I felt that you know I really wanted to be part of that and try and put forward what I felt was needed in terms of serving our members as well. Then lo and behold, Vicky Lummer, who's now our state manager, was stepping down as president. So I put my hat forward and uh, was successful. So it's been 12 months and we are up for renewal. I'm happy to continue for another 12 months at this stage, unless there's someone else who really wants to do their job. <laughs> it's hard. Like it is hard and I feel... Sometimes I don't have enough time to dedicate to it just because of the nature of my job day to day as well. Fitting it all in is, is challenging, but a greater appreciation for the complexity of all the issues and departments work that they do. And I know you've got your views on the department, but when you really get into it and understand the role they play and, and what they're trying to achieve, it's critically important that as an industry, PIA support them on that and we put in submissions and say what can be improved and what we agree with. It's difficult to do that as PIA because we do have a very diverse membership base. So we have developers, we have private, we have public sector, government staff as well. So putting forward a position on behalf of PIA is challenging because we all have it as a different viewpoint. So the committee works hard to sort of try and resolve that as best as we can. Our divisional committee has private and state and local government representation. So we are, I guess, representative of our membership group as well. And wherever we can, we try and get some sort of consensus that aligns with our national policy as well. You said you've got over 300 members in PIA in Western Australia, and it's not just local government planners, is it? It's also the private space, as you said. Mm. A young person comes out of Curtin's planning course, they've got a choice to make, mm. local government or private. 
Do you think there are some defining personality traits that will make them choose one or the other? And if they go to the public sector, do they get to choose strategic or statutory? Can you start to characterise this a little bit? Yeah, so peers a little bit involved in terms of the course curriculum at Curtin and with all university courses, peer actually accredits them every few years. So just to ensure that they are meeting, I guess, the standards that you know peer has set, we are involved in a review of Curtin course at the end of this year. So we have that opportunity then to understand what they're looking at. So some of the advice that we get from new graduates coming out of university is they had no idea what local government was like and mm. it's a unique place to work definitely Mm. I think if they can get that exposure early on that helps them make an informed decision about maybe local government is for them or maybe it's not but really having that diverse options and those options on the table is critical Curtin I believe I'm not sure if this is accurate but I understand that they do have a placement unit in their fourth year certainly at City of Stirling we've tried to accommodate that it's for a certain period of time that we have them in our like a vacation student yeah they come in and we try and structure that as best we can and we are fortunate because we're quite large we move them around the different teams so they will spend some time in strategic and they will spend some time in the statutory team as well getting that real appreciation for real life in terms of what local government is like Mm. it's certainly eye-opening for them when they come in and they sort of understand the beast that local government can be in some instances I think when they're at university a lot of it's theory and it's great and I want to change the world and then they come to local government and that's not necessarily how it happens (laughs) but it can it can so certainly in the policy and the strategic side of it that's incredibly diverse and important work from the strategic side of things but having that statutory day-to-day how does that policy then hit the road and it be implemented is critical I think for any planner I think having that well-rounded exposure and experience is going to set them up for their career. So how do they make that decision is it simply do you think for most people whichever entity public or private will give me a job fantastic is how is the labor market looking in the space right now or do you go well look these people who go private they've clearly got these attributes they they want to do this people who have gone to local government they're obviously fit into this mold is it that obvious no i wouldn't say so I, i literally think it's wherever the job is that they take up first thankfully for them they've got many options at the moment it's incredibly hard to recruit and retain planners there's just so many options for them we seem to be in a constant battle with dplh in fighting for planners so they'll do an ad campaign and then we'll have a whole raft of (laughs) resignations unfortunately but i don't ever begrudge the planners for doing that i think that's helps them in their career to get that varied experience although it hurts at the time because now we have to go and recruit again and the way they do it they have a pool so they'll have a pool of candidates that they might work through over a year so someone who might have interviewed in january might get a call up in september to say hey now we've got that job for you yeah you've been sitting in the pool we finally got something for you you're gonna have to take it otherwise you're not in the pool anymore yeah so that would segue us into the next conversation is quickly about i guess something that has been said to me many times before from both private and public space from some leaders really in the planning industry is that the best local government planners are those who have worked in the private space not just as private planners but possibly also in the development space mainly so they can actually have an appreciation for just how much work goes into getting projects to the front desk of a city in the first place how much risk how much money how involved developers are they're mainly not cowboys a lot of the time which is what i think a lot of planners look at us as would you agree that in your experience as well that to have that context and appreciation for what we're dealing with every day 
is critical to being the best planner in WA? It certainly helps. I don't think it's critical. I think you can still have that awareness and not having worked in the industry. If you're naturally a curious person, you're going to ask questions and try and understand things a little bit better. So some of my team haven't worked in private sector, but they're fantastic. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's one or the other. I think two things can be true at once. You can Mm. still have that appreciation for the other side of the fence, if you like, without working in there. So long as you are trying your best to understand what goes on and what's the process. I think that's a critical aspect that often gets overlooked and PEER now runs courses. So they do have courses where you can sort of undertake, I guess, that base level appreciation of what it takes for a development to stack. And certainly in Sterling, we try and use evidence base for policy framework and things like that so we reviewed our childcare policy recently and we collected a whole lot of data and really tried to understand from the industry's perspective what goes into those site selections and how does that happen how do they how are these all ending up in residential areas that is causing us some grief yeah, what are the pinch points what yeah. are the risks yep why is that occurring and what can we do to a try and make that fit in a in a more seamless or better way for the neighborhood but also Are there levers or things that we can do to encourage it in centres, which is where most planning frameworks want them? What did you find out? We had some improvements to our amenity clauses in our policy. It was pretty light on. So we put some additional wording in there and additional requirements. So really trying to get applicants to identify what is the amenity impact. And I think that word gets bandied around pretty readily these days. Well, a lot of neighbours use the word amenity when they, what, what they really mean is it's going to affect the value of my house. Sometimes, yeah. And I mean, look, if you're living next door to, a childcare centre and you've got car doors opening all day, then that will impact your amenity. So it's about trying to accommodate that in the best possible way we can. Did you learn a bit more uh, though about the pressures on the development side and how hard it is to, for example, stack up a childcare centre, find the lots in the first place uh, and then work through, I guess, the finances of the price points we need to meet, which leads to the outcome of why you don't see a lot of childcare in commercial zoning in the first place, which a lot of people would argue is not where it should be as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we looked at, you know, from the the developers that we interviewed, what is the sort of, is there a sweet spot? Is there a preferred location? And that became prevalent. Yes, there is. There is some exposure that they need on roads. The corner locations are preferred. There is a size, a sweet spot in terms of number of children that they prefer. I mean, that might shift over time as well. But it was certainly helpful for us to plot that across the city and see where are there gaps in our city in terms of where these childcare centres are going and our policy is saying one thing is that aligning with what's actually happening on the ground to a large extent it is but there are some outliers and it's those outliers that cause us and the community some grief so Mm. really trying to narrow in on let's try and focus on getting those outliers away from there and put them where they sort of are co-locating generally on those activity corridors and the best way for that i would have thought is obviously early engagement with the developer a developer should be comfortable and have the accessibility which is also a problem in a lot of local governments to just give you guys a call whether you're at sterling or bayswater or netherlands it doesn't matter have someone pick the phone up have someone answer your your messages that day if on the, an existing phone call with a question of look i'm looking to put it for example a childcare center here what do you think give me some honest pragmatic advice it might not be super detailed but am i going to run into some problems that you some red flags you can see straight away i don't think that's that too much to ask and i think that would head off a lot of problems where a developer would get all the way through to a jdap meeting have spent Fifty to $100,000 on an application is still butting heads, is getting a refusal by a city that said, well, you shouldn't have lodged in the first place. 
a lot of this can be prevented by early engagement and some frank and open feedback surely yeah definitely and i think it's key to have that policy or whatever is guiding that development be very clear on what you will accept and what you won't mm. so if if it's clear to the applicant at the outset that you're going to be pushing it this is not really what we're contemplating proceed at your own risk then that's fine they they might want to take that risk on do you think a risk also sits where those local government policies for example the city of joondalup have a very restrictive policy they brought in recently in the last year or so to reflect the council views about childcare, as a as an example again that just don't align with the jdap's views you essentially see them refuse every child care application but nearly none have been refused at jdap level is it quite strange there that you see this misalignment in policy between state and local level? And, and not just childcare, we can talk about apartments and, and other infill as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that can happen from time to time. And JDAP is a unique setup in terms of the way they make their decisions as well. And, and I know there has been criticism in the past of some of their decisions. I haven't been following in terms of Joondalup's childcare applications that they've put through. I guess that came about because of the community concern and mm. angst around childcare in residential areas. Oh, there was so, a massive proliferation through there over you know 2017 to 2021, really, yeah. which is why the policy came out in 2022. Yeah, so I mean, you c- can understand why why they did that with the community being very concerned. We don't have that level of concern in the city. Yes, we do have objections to childcare, absolutely. But for us, it was how can we make these things fit in as best we possibly can? And maybe there are situations where they're not appropriate. And we've been very clear on that in terms of our policy. But I, I guess it's up to JDAP as to what decisions mm. they make. And yeah, I can't really speak to what decisions they make. Going back to the understanding of and appreciation of feasibilities, finances and those things, is it true that amongst the cohort there is a, an education from Curtin all the way up that uh, we shouldn't really be focusing on that? The planning outcome is more important and the feasibility the finances are not our problem at the end of the day? Is yeah. that a culture you've seen amongst certain planners in the industry? It's a tricky one because I've been around more than five minutes. I know through experience every time a policy or some significant shift was trying to be introduced it would be the development industry saying, no, it's going to hurt our bottom line, no matter if we're in a boom or a bust cycle. Mm. And Gold Coast had a a huge number of those. So I I know the difficulty in introducing new policy, but I guess it's when do we shift and start trying to get better outcomes and who takes that longer view? So that's the role of the planner is in trying to take that longer view. And if it's not the planner... Well, it's the state government that really has to sponsor that, right? Yeah, and they do. And the planner obviously just enacts that. Yeah, and the state has the the targets that each local government has to adhere to and, and try and meet. So then the local government has to do their best to try and meet those targets. So planning is part of the puzzle, but equally planning's not solely responsible for delivering housing and no. it's not solely responsible for not delivering housing well, it either. often acts like a referee and we were speaking about this <laughs> yeah. off air, right? We were yeah. thinking I used to be a referee back in the early days in, the, in soccer and often I think the planning space might fall under the same level of criticism. They're entirely critical to administering and controlling orderly outcomes in, in a society. Otherwise, you'd have this ramshackled shantytown often. But at the same time, they often are the ones that are the ones getting shot down or the messenger copying all the flack simply for administering the rules that are made way above their level. Absolutely. It's a tough space to be in a lot of the time, isn't it? We spoke earlier about the conflict between you know developers and planners and that sort of us versus them that you sometimes see in local government, albeit I don't see that 
where I'm at, Sterling, and I, I don't necessarily think that's widespread, but I don't work in local governments across the state. The appreciation for the role of the local government officer, and yes, of course, I'm going to fly their flag, but it's a really challenging role. Mm. So it's you a thankless do, role all the time. It is, and I think that it's their role, it's council's role and local government role to take that long view. So if we are just talking about feasibility of projects, then how does that factor into that when we've got a plan to deliver something for 30 years time but at this particular time the property cycle says that won't stack Mm. so then do we just bend the rules do we then concede on that future planning because it doesn't stack today for a particular owner and that's the friction point isn't it it is it's really hard you look at a situation we have on a macro space around the country right now not just western australia most people in western australia would agree that the ideology behind most of the medium density code is honorable. Most of us want to see more green spaces, more tree canopy, better design with regards to solar outcomes as well in housing. Most people in industry are on board with that. But it's interesting how across the four years, I guess, that it's taken for it to come from conception to nearly inception, how the pinch points on the application of that have changed. You know, four years ago when there are less people worried about can we actually get this thing off the ground financially, I think there was a lot more space to think from a purely design-led outcome and think in secondary about, well, will this stack up at some point? Can we actually afford to have two-story houses in most of the suburbs in Perth if we want to do infill? Which in the city of Stirling, you'll recognise suburbs like Balga, Nolamara, Westminster, they're blanket infill these mm. days. It's pretty obvious to most people if they have their eyes open that in 2023, uh, at a policy with the provisions in it that require massive setback increases, uh, reduction in site coverage percentages, uh, essentially forces an outcome that most people can't afford. It is a shame, isn't it, how the t- length of time it takes to go from conception to nearly inception for something like the medium density code opens the risk up that the macro space can override all of the work being done by people along that way who have put a lot of heart and soul into it that for the most part had it right but for probably the most critical part back when it wasn't an issue was never probably looked at hard enough and when it's become an issue has been the thing that's broken the camel's back. Yeah, and I think peer is and planning is about getting good planning outcomes, which the medium density code was a step in the right direction. It's not perfect, nothing ever is in planning world, mm. but it's certainly an improvement, significant improvement on on what we sort of have to date. And I think that if when is going to be the good time? Like we we don't know. Clearly don't think, not now. I think we can agree on that, right? Yeah, but then when? So and when do we start lifting the standard? And I know this is widely debated, but there isn't a cost of that's been factored in, which is that cost to that end user on having that poor design outcome, and, mm. and that is underplayed, I think, and it's a critical thing, and that's Hard planning to quantify, role. Obviously, but I guess if you've got poor design orientation for your dwelling. If that's an extra $500 or $1,000 a year, that's too much. And if we're talking about affordability, I think we need to consider it in that whole context of, well, how are we going to get to a better design outcomes? Maybe that's a longer path. Well, it is obviously now, but a longer pathway than what we had originally intended. Mm. But we need to get better outcomes. I would agree with you that we do need to get better outcomes. And we obviously see a lot of the infill these days where some of it's great, some of it's acceptable, and some of it's not great, but it fits the policy. So it's it's a approved and yep. we don't do anything about it That's right? right and obviously the medium density code was just about shifting the dial further up to bring that standard up unfortunately i think you ask most people in society especially when right now they are struggling to get a rental let alone a place to live 
if you can have a house that's going to cost you 500 grand that'll cost an extra 500 dollars a year in aircon or 800 grand because they force it to be two-story and the aircon will be cheaper <laughs> it's pretty easy to answer how the society is going to go right and i think john kerry in recognizing boiling it down to that has got his finger on the pulse here and and yes we can understand that uh, we'd all like to increase the minimum standard of development but at the expense of the broader housing basic shelter provision in western australia right now i think it's really hard for people to honestly look people in the eye and say nah we would still prefer two stories and that's what we i mean no i agree that can't be the outcome right now right no i agree and that wasn't the problem four years ago when you had seventeen thousand houses on the market yes we were still structurally under supplying obviously four years later we find that out Mm -hmm. but at the time no one was really questioning, hang on a second, are people going to be able to afford two stories in Balga? Because we had 17,000 houses on the market and those properties were selling below replacement cost at the time. So it wasn't really critical, was it? No. And and the difficulty is the, the codes apply statewide. So we've got a mm. situation where inner areas, they're not affordable anyway. So we already know that that's not, not necessarily an affordable product, but yet you can't do that good design outcome in that area mm. by nature of it being a statewide policy. So being able to sort of unpick that somehow and, and have it apply in a dual pathway scenario, mm. if possible, is, is going to be fantastic. So, but So my thoughts hard. on this were, and I can understand why this wouldn't happen, I posited this to you offline before, is that let's get the good things of the medium density code out in mm. terms of the ancillary dwellings, the smaller lot sizes, the smaller dwelling sizes, the two-story zero lot boundaries, all the things that allow for more flexibility about the way we design, I think. And let's pop them in the existing code in addition to the things that are being built right now that everyone understands and just broaden the church so that everyone can develop anything that they have been able to or want to with regards to the medium density code as well. And we can add as much supply as possible right right now right and not put in the things that were going to kill the bottom end yeah uh, which we know about site coverage and setbacks which i guess i still to this day can't fathom how that was a part of the code that was coming through how how that got through to the end who put that in i, I still can't figure out who that was and why i guess the the, the response to that is well trent the minister doesn't want to have to re-advertise this. And if you go and try and change the existing code, he's got to re-advertise. There's a whole schmozzle going on about people arguing left and right. So what is the answer? Is there a way? Do, you've had the round table. Minister Kerry, two weeks ago on the business news, breakfast was essentially pointing out that he was doing his best to try and facilitate this. Are we going to have an ability for a dual code pathway or something that looks like that, Amanda? I hope so. And certainly the minister's very keen to try and make it work. He's very committed to that. He mm. understands where Planning Institute and Institute of Architects and Landscape Architects are coming from and wants to not, I guess, throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm. understands that that code, the medium density code, has its benefits in some areas, whereas it doesn't in some areas as well. So it's really tricky to pick apart. Planning, you can't just sort of pick a few provisions and slot them in, unfortunately. Mm. It's, they're intrinsically linked. So to do that, I think you'd Frankenstein it to an extent that it probably wouldn't have good outcomes anymore. Yeah. Um, but and can I don't we live with the dual pathway? Is it is it possible know. on a statutory <laughs> basis? And is it even practical four or five years from now we're still I mean, you know, people could say, well, we're sitting with a couple of draft livable neighborhood policies and no one's got a problem with that. It just complicates the framework and mm. I mean the idea is not to have more layers of, of framework as everyone can appreciate. That's what the whole planning reform intent is to simplify the whole Less thing. Less confusion. Yeah, yeah. And I think if it was just sitting on a shelf, yep, great. We could lean on that when we want. 
but then it also just is another thing we have to assess. So I think, you know, when you look at officers' reports and what they have to go through and assess and balance up, it... It's gotten bigger and bigger over the years, It has. Yeah, Yeah. it has. And some of it's necessary, some of it potentially not. As has the list of conditions on a development approval. (laughs) Years ago, it was a handful of conditions. Tell me. (laughs) Queensland's got pages of conditions. Hundreds. Even more. (laughs) Even more than us. Don't go there. And I think that obviously we sit here looking to solve the problems we've got. But I think most of us also recognise that whilst we've got many things we could improve on in Western Australia, I feel like we're all in a consensus that it's actually even worse in the East Coast. Potentially. So it's a different framework and they all have their own challenges. I did a little bit of work in New South Wales when I was in private. Queensland went on a reform journey and, and it takes a long, long time to get that through any government. So it's at least 10 years. And I think the fact that we've been in reform for a while and there is that significant reform agenda from the department it's a good thing. Like we want them to be proactively and improving things as we go. You can't just make policy and let it sit there for a number of years and not touch it again. I think the willingness to be reviewing this, although a little bit painful for everyone having to provide submissions all the time, is a positive. Maybe we could change it to just continual improvement rather than reform because there is a lot to get through and the nature of our framework over here presents different challenges when you do start fiddling with one thing it has a flow-on effect. John Kerry made a comment a couple of weeks ago at the Business News Breakfast and that was that medium density is actually not triple X's and quads and a few townhouses here and there. If you go around the world medium density really is six to eight storey apartment buildings. That's where we actually solve our housing problem. It's how you get scale. I think the reason that we only talk about medium density in the land-based subdivision triplex sort of space is because we can't even fathom having a conversation about six to eight storey apartment buildings. It just seems decades away for us in what could be realistic. Dan Andrews' government from Victoria has just brought down Uh, I think 31 recommendations or changes to their planning code to try and fix their housing supply issue and get to the 80,000 houses a year that they need to build. And one of them included creating essentially a standardized four or five story apartment building design that if you could fit it on certain blocks, they're automatically approved. What do you think of that? That'd help cut out some of the risk and uh, for developers, it's a big part of it, obviously. All they have to then do is find blocks that meet a certain price point in a suburb that has sales values at a certain price point. We know what it's going to get approved. We can essentially have a cookie-cutter cost and away we go. Would that not be a big part of solving our solution, some scale to what we're doing in urban infill? Yeah, I think that needs to be looked at. And I, I do understand the minister's point of view that medium density over here isn't really medium density, but no. that is our framework. Mm. So the state framework does say that that is medium, albeit on the lower end of it, for sure. I think the conversation with the community about what that is and the benefits that can come from growth is part of the puzzle. And that's where Pia's been sort of advocating for some sort of more positive stories around growth and infill and what, what that can do. Yeah. yeah yep. So I, th- I don't think we do that very well because we, we have a lot of examples where it hasn't been so great. So the community do get upset, obviously, with height. And that's you know a sore point for a lot of communities. But we have to really go into those communities and explain the benefits of that growth, but also then what will that look like? So if that is a solution to have a cookie cutter or a standard design solution, that scares me a little bit just in terms of do we really want a monotonous standard? Oh, Paris know, looks but, all right. Yeah, but we're not Paris. <laughs> <laughs> what, what bit of Perth is Paris? <laughs> oh, you think again, like, you know, Brooklyn, for example. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of beauty in standardization 
50, 100 years from now, these are the buildings that we're trying to protect as heritage buildings. Yeah. You know? And look, you do get that in parts of Perth. So Mill Point Road, for example, along the foreshore there, all those buildings are exactly the same height. I'm not even so, talking about height, though. I mean, I'm talking about uh, just in the city of Perth, you've got terrace houses there that were all obviously built at the same time, same vintage. There was uh, clearly a cookie-cutter approach to that. And many people back in the time would have thought, oh, that's workers' housing and those sort of things. Now we rever that we've got a medium-density code that was trying to replicate that. Yeah. You know uh, what I mean? I know. Full circle. Yeah. yeah. It has come full circle. It's like it's essentially sort of like vintage fashion in a way. Yeah. Dipping into your parents' you know, clothing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it has its place. It just can't be rolled out too widespread. Otherwise, mm. that could be a disaster. And I mean, we do get that to some extent in some of our housing estates. You have the, you know, A, B or C design. Which one do you want? Yep. And we see that rolled out. So well, we see a lot of it through the city of Stirling. You know, yep. if you think about Westminster, Balgan, Olamara as those lower socio-demographic areas, a lot of that was state housing. The mm. old three by one with the porch out the front. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it can work in certain circumstances. With the unique situation we have and we're facing, we need a unique solution. And I don't think there is, well, we know there's no one solution to the mm. problem that we're in. So Because well, there's also another number of problems that we have it's That's not right. just one problem yeah it's certainly not planning at all <laughs> <laughs> there's a number of facets i think across construction finance and planning yeah where they all need to work together that's right and i i do get frustrated when i read oh, are planning delays and they're causing this and that and i just don't think that's the case yes there are circumstances where planning approvals drag on and on and they take some time and that adds significant cost mm. but i also know that approval time frames have significantly lowered particularly in wa and i can obviously talk for city of sterling but despite that quick approval time frame that you're essentially guaranteed under our fast track process which is still you can still do a design principles assessment we don't mm. just want tick box we want innovation that requires a bit of upfront work from the applicants or the consultants who are lodging their applications we're not seeing an overwhelming we've got the applications absolutely but you can be guaranteed an approval in in 28 days I would have thought that every man and his dog would be trying to get Maybe that. Maybe that's just an awareness thing. I mean, yeah, obviously possibly. the city of Sterling's got it, but it's yeah. not widespread. It's not uh, widespread across the industry that they understand. And to be frank, uh, there's probably not that many applications coming in right now just because nothing's really stacking up as well. Yeah, we have had a, a, a drop in applications, but I know that we're still getting those applications that would qualify There's, and we're sort of trying to raise that engagement and awareness because mm. we know when it gets busy again, that's what everyone will want, absolutely. Yeah. And I think... Maybe there's a bit of, they have a bit more time at the moment to try and sort things out. And there's a lot of complexity to purchasing and building at the moment. Well, things just aren't working, right? So developers are really, to be very fair and, and very frank, they're trying every permutation, every wacky idea to get things to stack up just so that they want to have work and then therefore can add amenity to the community. Every piece of supply, as John Kerry says right now, is good supply. Now, I wasn't a believer of that maybe four years ago. I'm a very much a pro-infill person, very much anti-expansion. But right now, I am on board with that, that we are we have such a crisis right now, especially at the social housing homelessness space, that every way that we as an industry, both from the private space and the public space and the banking space, to be frank, and they're an even bigger issue that we should be, uh, we should be raising, need to be working on the same team. And, and to segue into that, I guess finally, there are many planners within many cities that lead the way, that are fantastic people that want to be a part of the solution. 
And to be very frank, there are many planners in many cities that just are not, that either are indifferent or actually are part of the problem. How do we move the dial there in terms of the culture to make sure that every application is given its best opportunity for approval, even if it didn't start perfectly ready for approval? Is there a cultural change that can can occur here? You're the leader of the PIA. Do you see opportunities in some of the local governments that are just clearly reflecting anti-development ideology from their constituents? How do we move that dial and be part of the solution as a state? PIA is, is a member of a new group. And we love acronyms. So it's called BERG, which is the Built Environment <laughs> yeah. Reference Group. So that's the Planning Institute along with Property Council, UDIA, Engineers Australia, Institute of Architects and Institute of Landscape Architects. Well, that's about all of them really, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. So we formed that group about a year ago for that very reason, to get alignment. Yep, we're all going to have different views on certain things and that's okay. That's that's our role. But really trying to come together where we can get alignment on important issues that are affecting all of us and, and our members. So we paid particular attention to that pre-lodgement phase and really the importance that that brings to a project and it's it's not just about that customer service but it's all that certainty it's for the community as well as the council knowing what what's coming as well it's education too absolutely and trying to have that dialogue that open dialogue and really encourage it that's through all the state framework so the state framework calls for that as an important part of the planning puzzle we're aware some councils aren't doing that so we wrote a letter to the minister as a united front to say look we think this is a really important aspect and it, it's called for in your own planning framework and some guys are letting us down yeah and i think where we can advocate for certain things like that to really empower those officers then at those local governments to make those decisions and have those conversations. That's a huge part of it, isn't it? Because yeah. there's a lot of scared planners. They are. And I don't, I honestly don't think that they're coming at, whether it is the case, they're coming at developers or, you know, as the baddies. Mm. Yes, there might be a very small percent that think that, but it's probably about the empowerment and them being confident and making decisions yeah. that they're not going to get... Will this affect my career? Will yeah. I get sacked? Will I not get Absolutely. promoted? Absolutely. And, and I think that's the, for me, the medium density not proceeding and I've spoken to the minister about this is that design solution being the hard pathway so as an officer okay you've got something that's a little bit different you know the neighbours don't really love it but it's a great outcome for a number of reasons maybe for the street for the future neighbours who don't have a voice yet Mm. so to go into that battle that officer then is going to be questioned by their supervisor, their manager, their director, potentially the council, other elected members, the neighbours. So it's a hard battle to get that across the line, which is why the medium density, I think, having that option to use that was a good thing. The culture in local government, I think, comes from the council as well. So well, there's a lot of councils. Yeah. You know, Joondalup used to be one of my favourite places to develop. The second that council got NIMBY, it became one of the hardest places to develop. And it wasn't the planners per se in there. Often you sit there and, and you feel sorry for them because yeah. they're refusing things they don't want to refuse. It's a hard it's hard. It's a difficult position to be in and, and an unpopular one like we we're talking about with the referee earlier. And I think delegations plays a role in that. So some councils have zero delegations for their officers and that that's no trust that's and that's yep. an expectation potentially from the community that the council has involvement in every single decision. I think that's 
somehow then gets blamed. Yeah, that's planning. Yes, it is planning, but it's not necessarily planning that's driving that. It's politics. So, and there's a high correlation between the political issues of infill and the efficiency and throughput of delivering it. Yeah, and it is important that the community have their say on applications and that the council have the ability to make decisions on applications. That's absolutely part of the process. But not affording any delegations or very limited delegations to offices, it, it's not great Well, for that's culture. why things like the JDAP and the SDAU have been created because the council have been getting in the way too much too often into critical a project opportunity. Uh, it's a critical pathway now that the states had to create. I don't think it's a pathway they want to be involved in, but they have to be clearly because too often now politics is getting in the way of the pathway we need to be following in order to make sure that our already sparse city in Western Australia doesn't get even worse. Yeah, that's right. And I think having those delegations in place and being able to empower officers to make the decisions, that will improve the culture in the organisation as well. They're genuinely scared. There's been some cases throughout the state, I'm led to believe, where questions have been raised and quite serious investigations have been launched into officers' decisions. So you can understand why sometimes they're hesitant. Mm. And look, you don't ever make those decisions lightly as a planner. It's always well, what what is the best decision uh, and what is going to be the best outcome for that community going forward. How about just one city council amalgamate <laughs> them all like Brisbane? Uh, the grass is not always greener. <laughs> That's what I'd say to that. I mean, yes, there are some efficiencies and benefits from that, but Brisbane City Council is huge and it covers such a broad area. I don't necessarily think that's an answer. I know amalgamations... About four or five large councils. <laughs> amalgamations was talked about here, I believe, yeah, a few about, years about ago. about 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, Stirling's big. It's it's pretty big. And I don't necessarily think a council bigger than Stirling works terribly well. It's a sweet spot in my view. I've worked at the bigger ones and I think Sterling's the right size to still be able to just walk up to the CEO or the mayor or whoever it is and have a conversation. Whereas the bigger council you get, you just can't do that. It becomes more siloed. It becomes harder to to get that coordinated outcome. Well, there it is, Amanda Shears, five (laughs) Sterling-sized local governments. I didn't say that. Yeah, your (laughs) words, not mine. (laughs) Amanda, thank you very much for coming in today. It's been uh, very productive and an enjoyable conversation. Again, I wish we had 50 Amanda Shears in yeah, Western Australia. Yeah, thank you. And it's great that you're joining PIA. I'm really stoked. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, important for all of us to work together. Yeah. It's it's really, imp- I think this, this is critical both from developers and planners, everyone listening today. We are not on two sides. Let's be a part of the same team. Let's try and achieve these goals as a state. Be patriotic. Let's fix this housing supply problem together. Hmm. Solve problems together. Be proactive about if there are issues. Let's solve them together and get an outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's what we're here for. We're all passionate about property. Let's do it together. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!